Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Katie Daly and me. I'm Howard Parker. John Lawless grew up in eastern Virginia as he describes not a hotbed of bluegrass music. As a kid, he got hooked on the banjos of Mr. Green Jeans, yes, from Captain Kangaroo, Pete Seeger, and eventually, of course, Earl. As a musician, he became a member of several bands, including Acoustic Endeavors and the nationally known Heights of Grass. In a career that also led him into retail and banjo instruction, John Lawless conceived a banjo transcription publication that eventually became the respected and popular company AccuTab, providing tabbed solos and licks approved by the players who originally recorded them. John Lawless was again ahead of the curve when he launched the internet-hosted service The Bluegrass Blog, a source of bluegrass music information for many years. And if those accomplishments weren't enough, John Lawless and his partner Terry Hurd launched the premier website Bluegrass Today in 2011, which focuses on the news and the business of bluegrass, bluegrass gospel, and Americana music. That website is bluegrasstoday.com. Awarded IBMA's Writer of the Year and Distinguished Achievement Award, John Lawless talks with Katie Daly. Up in Eastern Virginia in the 1950s and 60s, which, you know, has never been a hotbed for uh, bluegrass and traditional music, even though uh, just at the time I got out of high school and became interested in this music, there was a, uh, a flourishing, let's say, of that sort of music. Uh, you may even remember, Katie, the, uh, the bluegrass band East Virginia, which was based there in the Norfolk Tidewater area. Uh-huh. And and they actually toured all over the United States and were very successful. And that was the band that I used to be able to see, you know, in the in the local bars when I was 18 years old. Uh, I I also heard the the uh, Kingston Trio and the banjo really attracted me from the start. In in truth, my first exposure to the banjo was probably. Mr. Green Jeans on Captain Kangaroo. Oh. He played a long neck Pete Seeger style banjo regularly on the show, and I always thought that was really cool. It appealed to me. You know, I mean, I'm six years old, so it's not like it appealed to me intellectually. I just thought it was cool. But when I saw Earl Scruggs on the Beverly Hillbillies, which back then was, you know, primetime television, uh, that just captivated me. I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever heard. And at the same time, I thought it was some kind of trick because I heard all this massive amount of music coming off the banjo and all you saw was Earl standing there deadpan with <laughs> to an eight-year-old kid like he was just wiggling his fingers a little bit. Right. And all this sound was coming out of the banjo. So, I, you know, that was... It had a powerful impact on me, but I don't think it was till I was high school age that I really thought that I might play music. So how did you start playing banjo? Well, when I, I played in bad rock bands in high school, 
you know, garage bands. And I loved it. I loved the camaraderie of being with other musicians and working as a group towards one goal. And I played, you know, electric bass guitar at that point. But when I was a senior in high school, um, both myself and a good friend both kind of converted to bluegrass. Huh. And I got a banjo and he got a guitar and we listened to Ralph Stanley and Flatten Scruggs all the time and, you know, we're absolutely determined that we were going to make this music. And I took a class, you know, from the guy that ran the local music store and, you know, learned a little bit. But when I found Earl Scruggs' book, that's when I I was into this. Mm-hmm. For some reason, it connected quickly and easily for me. Not that I could play all that stuff, but I understood it. Um, and I would listen to the to records over and over. And, you know, back then, and this would have been 1973, you know, there were no computers, no software. I don't even think cassette tapes were really a thing. So you had to take the old records and play them at 16 RPM to learn you know, what they were playing. Right. And, you know, my poor family, what they listened to, <laughs> you know, my mom would <laughs> pop in and, you know, she, she would explain to me that listening over and over and over to Ralph Stanley singing an octave low at half speed was really not something that everyone enjoyed. It was something that the U.S. troops should have used on Noriega, right, instead of rock. It probably would have worked. It would have worked. Uh, but I, for whatever reason, I was able to figure those things out, and I just loved it. And I, that's all I did is play. Mm-hmm. I, I went to college the next year, and, and then my friend, who we had started with, we started a band together. And actually, he stayed in the music, too. You, you may have even met him. He uh his name was Bill Smith, and he played with the Country Gazette at one point. Right. Ordered that American, America's Bluegrass Band. Was that the name of that one record? I remember Bill. Yeah, and he was a terrific musician and uh, and singer, especially. Mm-hmm. But back then, you know, we had our little band that played the local bars, and, uh, you know, we had fun. And that's what you did. Did you have a day job, or were you primarily it point but i was living with my parents mm-hmm. teaching banjo lessons uh you know I, at that point i probably didn't know a whole great amount more than the people coming in to learn from but i knew you know i could stay ahead of them and point them in the right direction right so i even when i moved from my parents home and you know i taught taught banjo and played in, in bands and that's how i supported myself but you know you've known enough bluegrass musicians to know that that's you know you're not socking the money away for a rainy day in that situation so what was the name of the band well (laughs) we had a little band gosh this would have been maybe 1975 era called the james river ramblers okay and we left absolutely no mark on the world Uh, we played a little bit, and, and we had great fun and learned a lot. There's a lot of things about playing music you can only learn in a band setting, how to play together, how to 
put a set together, how to entertain a group of people, you know, how to work a microphone. How to get along. Well, getting along was a big part of it. And I think that, you know, that there were stresses in that band that, that I see even today within the bluegrass world. We had a couple of people who were very much urban educated people and some other people that were more of a rural background. And, you know, those are, those worlds don't often get along tremendously well. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that band ran its course within a few years. And we started, you know, I got a job working at Bush Gardens one summer. Oh. I don't know if you've been through Bush Gardens or not, but they had a little bluegrass show. And I got a job playing banjo in, in the bluegrass show at Bush Gardens. And it was not fun at all because it, it was a completely scripted show. We didn't get to pick any of the music we played. We had a script of what to say in between songs, and we did it six times a day, day in and day out. Hmm. And, um, you know, I started my day walking up to the microphone, getting the audience clapping and singing, thank God I'm a country boy. And that was not something that, you know, you jump out of bed ready to do. Probably in costume, sort of. Any- yes. 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 And not only costumes, but heavy, thick costumes made out of upholstery material <laughs> that would last many, many washings. So how long did that last? I did it through one summer and then part-time in the fall. And I think I did it again in the spring of the next year. Um, but again, it was a great lesson in being a professional musician and entertainer. This is your job. And getting the regular paycheck that you do wouldn't bounce. Absolutely. And those, you learn that those two things go together. <laughs> you do what the people pay and you want you to do. Mm-hmm. True in every job you get pretty much anywhere. Right. Uh, so did you keep up with any of those uh, people? Yes, I did. I, I, I made some good friends in that process, several of whom uh, we started a band with after the Bush Gardens experience. So I, I see on a resume that, that you uh, wrote that you played with Five and Dime. Now, that's the name of an album. Oh, that's the name of the album. Was Which band recorded that? Well, it was really um, mostly uh, the typical rent band vibe. It, really, I, I called on a lot of the people who we had done projects for with Accutap mm-hmm. and asked them if they would come and be the band. And we had Tim Stafford and Kenny Smith playing guitar and Alan Bybee playing mandolin, and uh, who else played man? I think we had somebody else. Maybe Alan played it all. And, you know, so, I mean, it was, you know, a group of people like that. Ron, Ron Stewart played fiddle, and I had some folks from Roanoke played on the record as well. I was playing at the time with a band called Acoustic Endeavors, and you met them, Katie. Yes, I sure did. They played on a couple tracks, and, you know, so it was it was that kind of project. It was banjo tunes that I had written and a couple of vocals. Um, 
In fact, Bill Smith came down from where he was living in New York at the time to sing one on there, hmm. which I was very happy about. Is this still in print? Can we get it anywhere? Uh, as far as I know, it, um, it's still available through digitally. It was released by Copper Creek Records, which has since, I believe, gone out of business, uh, at least as far as new projects go. But I think the old ones are still available you know, on the digital sites. Mm-hmm. Could be mistaken about that. But you know, I, I enjoyed doing it very much. And, you know, again, another growth step, you know, as a musician getting to do that. I took a job briefly with a band in Richmond called the Heights of Grass. You probably uh, I do remember them, yes. And they were a very professional outfit based in Richmond, not far from where I lived in Tidewater. And they toured all over the country. They had just made a big leap forward. Sonny Osborne had kind of taken them under his wing and got them on CMH Records, which was the Osborne Brothers label at the time. And they had management working with them. I mean, it wasn't common for bluegrass bands at that time to, and I guess this probably would have been early 80s, you know, to, to have that kind of a professional background. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or I should say, young bluegrass bands on the way up. Right. Uh, and uh, it was impressive for me. I got a regular paycheck, uh, regardless of whether we were, we were working or weren't working. You know, and they had a nice bus and all that kind of stuff. And I enjoyed playing with them. However, after I'd been with them, I'm not even sure, let's say a few months, they met Sammy Sheeler and then figured out they really didn't need my services after all. (laughs) (laughs) So they sent me back to Norfolk, and uh, Sammy joined the band. Right. And that's back when he had hair. Uh, Wow. (laughs) 19 years old when I met him. But still playing like a pro, right? Oh, absolutely. So you're back in Norfolk out of a job Uh, and what happened then well fortunately at that time that i took the job with the heights of grass i had about 40 regular banjo students and i started working some hours at the music store as well and we put the nothing doing band back together but it was really only for doing some you know local shows and pig roasts and oyster parties and things like that we never really tried to tour all right well so how did you get into accutab i mean were people really doing these videos and stuff at some point you had to get some technology savvy where did that come from well it, it it's like so many things that are major turns in your life it's just a happy coincidence of happenstance. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm living in Roanoke. My son is a little older. He doesn't need the kind of constant care that you need when you're four and five. And I've got some more time on my hands. Um, we had just bought our first computer, and that would have been like 92, I'm guessing, that that time frame. And home computers were were not common, but they were they were possible. Yes. And we bought our first computer, and I 
learned a good bit about what they could do. And I had always been good at transcribing banjo music. I, I did it for my students when I was in Norfolk, and it just isn't, you know, it wasn't difficult for me, probably because of those years of slowing those records down and mm -hmm. listening to the mechanics. Uh, and I ran into Sammy Sheeler, who had, at that point was with Lonesome River Band. And they're carrying the Tradition album had just come out, which you, you remember from radio. That was a monster hit. In right. And I ran into Sammy at an LRB show, and I had transcribed a couple of the solos from there just for myself. And I was talking to Sammy about it and said, you know, we ought to put a book out with all that stuff. And he was like, yeah, man, that's a good idea. Let's talk about that. And as we talked about it, he was like real encouraging and said, well, yeah, man, do the transcriptions and <coughs> excuse me, we'll get together. And by the time I had them done and met with him to proof them, um, he was involved in some other things. And I think he had recently bought a bus for the band and, he was like, man, I just don't have the time and energy for this. But but he encouraged me, why don't you do it, you know, and I'll kind of sign off on it. And so I thought, well, what the heck? So, you know, we agreed, you know, that I would give him a portion of the proceeds from the book. And I, you know, found the software that allowed me to do it, at, you know, at that point. I mean, the there was no software that did tablature that I could find except what the Banjo newsletter was using. Mm -hmm. And I got in touch with uh, Don Nietzsche, and he showed me where I could get that software. And fortunately, I had a Macintosh computer, and that software only worked on Macintosh computers. So it worked out. So I got that software and got... Uh, you know, some page layout software, and I had to learn it all. I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. Wow. Figured out how to, you know, create a book using that software and had a, fan, a friend who was a bluegrass musician down in North Carolina who worked at a print shop. Perfect. So he, you know, was able to print the book and ship them up here to me or up in Roanoke where I was, and I you know, put an ad in Banjo Newsletter and an ad in Bluegrass Unlimited and said, hey, Sammy Sheeler Banjo Tabs. And we sold a 1,000 copies in, I don't know, maybe a year. Really? Re relatively short space of time. But you got to keep in mind, back then there was nothing like that. And that carrying the tradition, and I think we also did the old Country Town album in that book. Um, there were big albums by a hot band and there was nothing like that available so it did well and i so you know my first thought was gosh if this works why not want to do it with some other banjo players and i think i reached out to bill emerson and uh, he was up for i did a book for bill emerson and uh somebody else i think terry bockham i did those you know, within a few years' time, and mm -hmm. did well, and you know, just figured, well, let's just keep going. Let's just keep doing this, right? And I don't remember the order they all came in, but we did one for Joe Mullins, who at the time had uh, was with the Traditional Grass, and they were 
pretty hot band. We did one with Pete Warnick, who was with Hot Rise. Yep. And they all liked the idea, too. And so, uh, I mean, you know, is, this was not a, a, like a raving success. I mean, it, it, it shared some income with my family, but, it, you know, I couldn't have supported a family on what we were making. Well, who else was doing how-to play music books? Mel Bay, was, were they? Of course, but those were instructional books. Okay. And, and what I was doing was transcription books. It was saying, okay, you know how to play banjo. Here's all of Sammy's licks from these albums, or all the Pete Wernick licks from this album. And so that appealed to people. And honestly, the idea came to me from my retail music store days. Back in the 80s, you know, they were available for rock bands. So the latest album from Cheap Trick, here's the guitar solos book. And they were done by, you know, Warner and, you know, the big companies. And they were, you know, full color, glossy, you know, uh, with the guitar chords and the guitar solos. And they were pretty popular with the young kids that wanted to play rock guitar. And I mm-hmm. just figured, well, this should work in bluegrass too. Um, and it did. Of course, a much smaller market, much smaller audience for the books, but they did well enough to be successful as a business. Now, did you branch out from banjo at all? Are there other instrument tab? That, that happened more later. I found a partner who invested in the company, and that allowed me to get an outside office and hire somebody to help me. And at that point, it became important to do more books. So we we expanded. We did a guitar book for Tim Stafford and one for Kenny Smith. And we did a mandolin book for Alan Bybee and one for Wayne Benson. And then we did a Dobro book for Rob Ikes. And that was about the time that video started to become a realistic possibility. You know, there was software available for video editing, which used to be a very expensive process to go to a studio, shoot and edit a video. And Homespun Tapes was on the scene. I guess they eventually became Homespun Video. And Mel Bay started doing video, and Murphy Henry was doing video. And it just happened again. By happen chance, I met a fellow who had a audio and video recording studio nearby. He was willing to work with me like on a commission basis that instead of paying him a lot up front for the creation of the videos, I would pay him a percentage of all the videos we sold. Mm-hmm. And it was working pretty well. And he was so he was taking a chance, betting that you'd sell well, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And I would pay him. At first, I paid him. At the very beginning, he just he shot and edited the videos. And, I, of course, I helped him. And, and then he would charge me for each VHS tape I purchased from him. Mm-hmm. So it, initially, he was getting his money that way. And then when, when DVD became realistic, you know, you remember when DVD players were expensive. And then before long, you were getting DVD players with a box of cereal. All right. <laughs> and, and they were $59 at Best Buy. 
So then we started making DVDs, and the VHS tapes became obsolete pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's when I, you know, we worked out a deal on a commission basis, and and that was going really well. Uh, and and this was my friend Brant Skillahan, who you met, I believe. I know Brant, yes. And and during that time of doing Accutab video, um, Brant and I developed a joke between us of how we wanted to have a blog because back in 2004, everybody had a blog. And the blog was a magic word. Right, like podcast now. Right, right. And so we used to joke about, you. we don't have a blog. I wish we had a blog. And then one day, Brent literally said, you know, we could have a blog. He had discovered the software that was used by a lot of people doing blogs and he downloaded it was open source free software still is today and figured out how it worked and he was like you know if we want to have a blog we could have a blog mm-hmm. now Brant's background is he went to South Plains College was was he also a banjo player I don't remember he's a guitar player and stuff. ah okay and uh but while at South Plains he also I mean if you remember back then the program even though it attracted a lot of bluegrass people. It was actually commercial music. Commercial music, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so he learned television production and video production while he was down there. And um, so he had, you know, he had studied that in school, which of course I hadn't. And so he and I, you know, not only that, we became friends and are still friends. But we wanted a blog just for ourselves, and so we said, well, why don't we start a bluegrass blog? And I I called a half dozen friends I knew in the industry. Um, you remember when Pete Kuykendall's daughter was running Bluegrass Unlimited? Right. Sharon, and I called her and said, hey, do, you know, do you think there'd be an interest for something like this? And I called a few people. I think I called Dave Freeman at Rebel Records, who I knew, and just some people to because obviously if it, nobody wanted to advertise on it then what the one was pointing us doing the work other than just to have a blog but we found that some people were interested so we started the bluegrass blog and i think at that point the only other person doing something like that was bob cherry out in colorado who had the cybergrass website remember that yes and i'm not sure why but bob has stopped doing that now um but in any event, um, we figured, well, we'll use this new software and and found software that made inserting advertising pretty simple, and we went for it, and it became popular. It, for whatever reason, I think we were just able to hit the spirit of the time when blog was a super cool word. Well, I think it was you're you're downplaying it by saying it became popular. I mean, it was it was an instant hit. It, I always called you the Associated Press of bluegrass. If you needed a headline news, uh, you needed it right now. Uh, you didn't have to wait a month for Bluegrass Unlimited to come out. You could just go to your computer and and find it out. And and at that time, you really were. What kind of stories were you looking for? Just headline news or yeah, pretty much headline news and, and a lot of stuff. Hey, there's a new jam in Cleveland on Tuesday nights. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, so-and-so has quit another band and joined another band. And 
you know, here's a new album review, that kind of stuff. It's just large, very much what we're doing with Bluegrass today now, only on a smaller scale. So the content was mostly coming from you and Bryce? Brants. Brants, I mean? Yes. Okay. The, the content. And as things got a little more involved, um, Brants had less and less time for it. So I ended up doing probably the larger share of it, but he did all of the the coding and the software stuff. Mm-hmm. In a thing about that stuff. And um, it began to take a lot of my time from Accutab as well. So it became a situation where it, it was making money, but we weren't paying ourselves. We basically, we used the income of the Bluegrass blog to play, pay for Brants and I to go to IBMA every year. I see. And that was nice. That was a couple, several thousand dollars we didn't have to pay out of our other businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, but then Brant's got the calling to go into the ministry. Now my AccuTab DVD guy is gone, and my Bluegrass blog partner is gone. So what am I going to do? Um YouTube had also taken off at this point and was, you know, the people doing free banjo instruction on YouTube were taking a major bite out of, out of AccuTap. Mm-hmm. So I'm seeing one business decline and the ability to do the other one disappear. And then just, again, fate, providence, whatever you want to call it, my friend Terry Hurd called me one day from Nashville to say, you know, John, I'm thinking about starting a, a, a bluegrass website. Would you be interested? And as I talked to him, I found out that what he was doing was what he wanted to do was what I was already doing. Uh-huh. So we rolled his idea and the bluegrass blog together into bluegrass today. And what year was this where they... 2011 is when we launched. They, okay. And Terry's idea was to do something more professional than the Bluegrass blog, which was kind of folksy, and um, and that was the blog world. You, you had a relationship with your readers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was more community-based than... Terry wanted something a little more professional that would appeal to... Uh, advertisers. Advertisers, exactly. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Terry's background was, even though he was also a banjo player, his background was, was Bluegrass Radio. He had, you know, and still has a very successful syndicated radio show, Into the Blue, which I think he's now on like 130 stations all over. Wow, that, that's impressive. It is impressive, and it's a three-hour show, goes out once a week. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of experience dealing with bigger advertisers. And he felt like he could sell this as well. But he's not a writer. I'm not an advertising guy. So we made a perfect partnership, he and I, uh, to approach doing this. And as it happened, uh, my parents had recently passed and left a small nest egg, not enough to, to really change your life, but enough to invest <laughs> into creating Bluegrass Today. Mm-hmm. Terry had some money from when he was with it Sirius. He had sold some stocks, and there we had some money. So 
once again, the situation just presents itself. And we, we reached out to some other people we knew. We found a team of about, I think, about five people to, start, to launch Bluegrass today. And we did. We launched at IBMA in the fall of 2011. So the five people, what were their jobs? Were they writers or what were they? Yeah, uh, David Morris, who you know, mm -hmm. uh, was one of our writers. Um, we had a guy that did nothing but uh, coding, you know, computer software stuff. Right. And then we had a guy that was kind of, uh, he handled a lot of the computer stuff, a lot of the social media stuff, and it was more of an idea guy. Um, and again, it caught up, caught on very quickly. We had a huge advantage in that we had about five years worth of Bluegrass Today content. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Bluegrass blog content. Right. That was already in Google and all the other search engines. And people had the habit of going to the, Blue, the Bluegrass blog. So when we launched Bluegrass Today, it already had a big footprint in Google. We just redirected Google to Bluegrass Today. And all that content was still sending traffic um, to the Bluegrass blog, which was now owned by Bluegrass Today. Right. If that makes any sense. And so you added there are certain features that have been added, like uh, the charts. Right. That was another big thing for Terry. Of course, as a radio guy, he saw the value in creating an honest, uh, transparent chart that was based not on DJ favorites or anything else, but on the actual airplay. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, actually a sizable job for him every week to compile yeah. all the stuff. Well, when I last looked, there was well over 100 reporting DJs. How many? Do you know how many? I, I don't. I mean, I should, but it's kind of like that's Terry's side of the business. I've got mm -hmm. enough to worry about on my side. Well, it's a wide-ranging uh, list of, of bluegrass radio people. So we compile and collate that information from a number of sources, and, you know, what we can report is what's the most played songs. And, of course, Terry is a, a big part of that with all his stations, and Cindy Bauckham has a lot of stations that she plays on. I think she has well over 80, doesn't she? Yeah, I think that's correct. Mm -hmm. She reports to us. Um, uh, Kyle Cantrell reports the most played tracks from from Bluegrass Junction, and then of course uh, Joe Mullins reports from his radio station and from his uh, what's the syndicated show that he does, the Gospel Show. I can't think of the name of it all of a sudden, but anyway, that's that's a bunch of syndicators as well as you know, a good number of weekly shows. Well, if people want to see, they can go to the charts, and then down at the bottom, you click on a link that shows all the reporting, you know, who they are and what stations. And we're always interested in, in new DJs. The only restriction we have is that um, we want to, we are reporting terrestrial radio. Mm. There's been some talk of incorporating uh, online stuff, um, but I don't know, you know, where that is, honestly. Okay. 
was Chris Jones uh, and his sort of humorous column, was that there right from the beginning, or was that? That was uh -huh. one of the very first things I wanted to add was some humor. And at the very beginning, we had Chris Jones and Chris Stewart both doing a uh, weekly column. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed both of them. Chris, it got to be too much for Chris with the other things he was doing. But um, if you know Chris Jones, he's one of the most intelligent, wittiest people in bluegrass. And you may or may not know, it's extremely difficult to be funny on demand once a week. Right. He has done it for the past nine years. Wow. Without fail. And I think his stuff is always fresh and funny and directly relates to bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And also to the seasons and stuff. He always... Uh, rel uh, and it's rel a very popular column for us. That right. and Sonny Osborne's weekly column are both very very popular with her. You just added that, right? That's relatively new. That was mm -hmm. Terry's idea. He just thought, I wonder if Sonny would do a column for us. And my suggestion with Terry was that, well, I'm sure that he would, but it has to not be a lot of work for him. Maybe Sonny's in his 80s and, you know, at that age, the last thing you want is a chore. Right. So we thought, well, what if people just ask him questions and he just has to respond? And he loved that idea. And Sonny loves doing this column. Well, it also, there's a tremendous amount of history, personal history and professional history. He tells some great background stories on songs and events. Uh, it's very interesting. I think so, too. And I don't think he's forgotten the thing that happened to him since he was a kid. Mm-hmm. And people write in, hey, you remember back in 57 when you guys were playing in Podunk, Kentucky, and somebody yelled something from the audience, and he goes, oh, yeah, I remember that. And he'll <laughs> tell the whole story. <laughs> and, you know, anybody that cares about bluegrass should be very interested in anything Sonny Osborne has to say. Right. And he's very upfront about what he thinks. This is my opinion. This is what I think. And it's worth knowing. So what other kinds of stories are you looking for? Well, the concept is, Terry described it to me from the start, loosely as like the CNN of bluegrass. Something's going on, we're going to write about it. And I'll be honest, I was a little worried, would we have enough content? But we... Always have. Now, this time of year, we're talking right around New Year's, and there's not as much going on. So I have to be a little more creative in finding, you know, four or five stories every day. Right. But I, we always do. And it, it just seems like whenever I'm thinking, what the heck am I going to write about today? Then I get an email, here's a new video from our band. Or so-and-so quit and went with another band. Right. I've got one of those I'm going to write this afternoon. Oh. And you know what? It doesn't appeal to everybody in the bluegrass world. Some things will appear more, appeal more to the radio people or to festival promoters or to amateur pickers or to fans. They're all part of the community. And, you know, once in a while, of course, the saddest part of my job is writing the obituaries. Yes. Um, uh, but, you know, there's something that will be interesting to many people, if not everybody. 
and that's what we do. We, fortunately, Bluegrass is a big enough group and a big enough tent now that there's there's always something. All right. Is there anywhere you take the line and that's it? That's that's either not of interest to my readers or it's not appropriate or or do you uh, say it's quote not bluegrass whatever that is and sometimes that does come up i mean there are groups that i don't know if i'd say promote themselves as bluegrass but will use the word bluegrass in what they do and sometimes it's easy terry came up with the phrase or the word grassacana to describe Mm -hmm. bands that have a bluegrass aspect but they really appeal more to an americana crowd you know they they wouldn't be booked at bean blossom uh and you think of bands that are very successful like the infamous string dusters who we do cover because they're they're so obviously bluegrass is part of what they do right it is a more modern contemporary type of bluegrass but um in other words there's no real question that infamous string dusters are part of the bluegrass family yonder mountain string bands another band on that side that uh is bluegrass but then there there are other groups of leftover salmon pretty much a bluegrass group but they often tour with the drummer and a keyboard player you know so then then the line gets fuzzier right it's you know it's I don't know where to draw the line. I know that I go too far sometimes because without fail, when I cover a group that's more, you know, there's not a word really for it, Um, but the more very modern, less bluegrass sorts of bands that um, we get complaints. All right, and so to go in the other direction, uh, you don't usually cover old time. Not a lot, but we do cover it some. Right. Old time is part of the same family. And old time music is getting, and not getting, has gotten performance based. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of bands that tour. Uh, and then there's groups that are hard to peg, like the Neffish Mountain Band and Chloe and Floyd. Is it bluegrass? Is it old time? You know, ultimately. I figure I'd rather write about most of it and let people read what they like. I know there's a certain element in the bluegrass world that feels personally insulted if they see something that they don't consider bluegrass. Right. And it's it's wonderful that people embrace the music so completely that they are bothered by the word they love, bluegrass, being assigned to something that they don't think is bluegrass. Right. Uh, so what do you think he, can you tell us or share uh, with me what might, what you're thinking, kicking around, any ideas for uh, feature writers or any columns, any? Not really, because the site is so news driven. I mean, if a new record is out, we're going to review it. If, mm-hmm. if a new single comes out, we're going to uh, announce it or introduce it. If a new band pops up, we'll introduce them to you. I mean, it, but it's it's more based on the news, what's happening in the news, um, than it is uh, those kind of features. I mean, we do have features like the 
We have one called Bluegrass Beyond Borders, which talks about bluegrass bands outside the United States. And we do that twice a month. And these bands, most of them very much appreciate having the opportunity to uh, have their music brought forward in the United States and, and, and to a global audience. Because we mm -hmm. get, you know, readers to Bluegrass Today from, you know, used to be just every English-speaking country. Now it's every nation on the globe with a few exceptions. Uh, you know, South America, Africa, Middle East, Far East, all the uh, Southeast Pacific Island nations. So bluegrass is, is truly international these days. Yes, it really is. Well, I want to talk about some of the accolades that uh, Bluegrass Blog and Bluegrass Today have received through the uh, IBMA. Uh, you I guess it was as Bluegrass Blog, you and Brantz received um, the first print journalism award that went to a digital entity. Yeah, I was very proud of that. Uh, and so was Brantz. I mean, the both of us were extremely pleased to see that. And I think you and I have talked about this in the past. I, we never submitted anything or asked to be considered. So it was a great surprise when uh, we were nominated. Well, it interested to show that the committee really was uh, going with the times. Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't know if it ruffled feathers or not. I never heard of any. But, you know, we were very proud to be able to go up there and accept it. And then to win that same award for Bluegrass Today was, well, it was very rewarding. I don't know what else to say. Mm -hmm. it, um, it's something I believe in very deeply. And Well, then you received, uh, Bluegrass Today received the Distinguished Achievement Award. That was, that was really cool. That was very cool. Yeah, and, you know, that's a pretty high honor for to be recognized like that out of the bluegrass industry, which is very large. There's a lot of people in the bluegrass industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, Terry was very proud of that as well. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know how to, how to express what it's like to be recognized by your peers that way. But it, uh, again, we didn't solicit it. It just, it came for whatever reason it came. And, and was well-deserved. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I, it was a little eerie. I've watched many presentations of that award, and it was a little odd watching it, you know, about myself. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I'm very proud of it. I, I, I don't know how any other way to say it, and somewhat humbled to be included along with some of the names that, you know, that, that are on that list. But what advice would you have for someone who was uh, looking for another way to serve the bluegrass community? Well, I think you, you said it right. Be open to everything. I don't. I can't say I was smart enough because I wasn't, but I happened to take on a lot of challenges. I learned about video when I had to. Right. So learn as much as you can and be prepared to assist in other ways. I mean, there's jobs at the IBMA. 
his jobs at the Bluegrass Museum in, in uh, Owensboro. You know, there's, there are universities now where you can teach bluegrass music. So there's a lot of ways to be involved in the music, or you could just teach privately. You know, these days, teachers make a lot more than I did back in the 70s and 80s. Right. Uh, so, I mean, these things exist, and you can get a degree in bluegrass music at a number of different schools. So if you're a good musician, or even if you just like bluegrass a lot, you could go to one of several colleges and get a bachelor's degree in bluegrass and then maybe get a master's degree in Appalachian studies or something like that, or in communications. So if you love bluegrass music, there's a lot of ways you can help promote it other than playing with Doyle Lawson. That was Katie Daly talking to John Lawless of Bluegrass Today. For the latest on bluegrass news, articles, columns, charts, and events, check out Bluegrass Today on the web at bluegrasstoday.com. Bluegrass Stories is hosted on SoundCloud.com and can be streamed on SoundCloud, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and katydaily.com. As always, thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories. Thank you.